0: Our annual Antioch family series that is titled I am not my own and each year we set aside a Sunday in this series to directly address an important and easily overlooked part of our Antioch family the singles who are in our midst now we have a variety of them in different seasons of life and you might be surprised to know that around 20% of our congregation is made up of singles and I'm not counting children in that number they're not second-class christians let me say this again singles are not second-class christians but in a church with so many families it can sometimes start to feel that way so today i want to speak about something that i call the singles paradox from galatians chapter two verse 20 i know i'll be speaking to singles but there will be plenty for all of us to receive from god's word today You can find that passage on page 973 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Now, while you're turning there, let me clarify what I mean by paradox. A paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement that is somehow actually true. When we read Galatians 2.20 in just a moment, if you pay close attention, you're going to see what I mean by paradox. It's reflected in the way that I'm going to break down today's sermon. You no longer live... You now live. Well, which one is it? Well, it's a paradox. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Church, hear the word of the Lord. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Have you ever seen one of these uh, Halloween basketball masks? Never seen one? Anybody ever worn one? Yeah? Okay. Well, I used to have one, and one time I wore it to a college basketball game. Now, it's hard to breathe in there, Gets smelly when it gets sweaty, but hey, like anything to cheer on your favorite team, right? Well, during one part of the game... Our team hit a really important three-pointer, and I, like everybody else who was cheering for the team, jumped out of my seat and shouted, yeah, except unlike anyone else in the stadium, when I landed, I landed on the stadium seat in front of me, and it caught me right here below both kneecaps. Yeah, feel that one in your bones for a second. So, you may not know this about me, but I have a medical condition that's kind of convenient where at a certain pain threshold, I just pass out. It's kind of like a possum, just gone. Well, when I landed on that stadium seat, I passed out. Fell back into my seat, out cold, head back with my mask on. Nobody knew I was unconscious. And to this day, I don't know how long I sat there unconscious while the game continued on. And people were like, is Brad cheering for the other team? He's just sitting there with his head back, like dejected. To this day, man, it's so funny. I think about the hilarity of it, but also the scary thing about it is that I could have easily suffocated inside that mask. And nobody would have known. Why? Because I was hidden. I needed someone to see me and wake me up. And interestingly, the same was true in the context of today's passage. We read in Galatians chapter 2, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, for a moment, Peter had fallen asleep on the gospel and needed someone to wake him up. Let me explain this. In the Old Testament age, the appropriate way to worship God was by keeping the Mosaic law. That meant the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system. The ceremonial law was all the things that the Jews did or didn't do that set them apart from other people's. Think like all the kinds of food that they didn't eat or the things that they didn't touch. This was what kept them clean, maintaining a sense of holiness and readiness to approach God at any time. Now, the sacrificial system was literal animal sacrifices to make atonement. As Leviticus 17.11 said, "...the life of an animal is in its blood. Therefore, the pouring out of blood in a sacrificial death..." could pay the debt owed to God for sinning against him. In other words, it was what kept you forgiven, clean and forgiven. So the order during the Old Testament age was, obey the law and you're made right with God. Justified is the language that we would use here in the New Testament. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, that order was reversed. In regard to the ceremonial law, Jesus said to his disciples, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That meant simply hearing and believing Jesus' words had the power to make you forever clean. And in regard to the sacrificial system, the book of Hebrews tells us of Jesus, For by a single offering, that is his death on the cross, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are following in faith in his sacrifice on the cross. So that meant by simply believing and receiving Jesus' sacrificial death, it had the power to make you forever forgiven, forever clean, forever forgiven. So that made the order, you're made right with God by faith, justified, and now you can obey the law y'all that is what we call the gospel therefore for the christian even the jewish background christian keeping the ceremonial law and sacrificial system was no longer necessary so peter a jewish christian He could come to a bunch of Gentile Christians like us in a place like Antioch and he could hug them and he could sit with them and eat barbecue with them and it would all be an act of worship that was pleasing to God. The problem arose with a group referred to as the circumcision party. The circumcision party were Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah but also believed that you had to keep the ceremonial law such as circumcision. So their order went like this. Yes, believe in Jesus and obey the law, and then you're made right with God, justified. So when the circumcision party came around, Peter, because of his background as a Jew, became afraid he was afraid that it would appear as though he had no regard for the law and possibly according to this order was not a Christian and you have to think about the massive pressure that was on Peter as the most famous most influential Christian of that moment so Peter politely left the barbecue with the Gentiles and from then on only hung out with other Jews over kosher food what had happened Peter had fallen asleep on the gospel. He was laid out, and nobody was really paying attention. And he needed someone to wake him up. That's what Paul is doing here in this passage. You know that? Like sometimes, I I don't know if you've read this passage, sometimes I'll read it, and I'm like, Paul is so gangsta. (laughs) He will straight up walk up to the most influential Christian at that point in history and he will rebuke him in his face in front of everybody. Paul don't care. But that's not what he's doing here. If Paul was just concerned with Peter's behavior, he would have walked up to him and said, Stop it! Do better, Peter! You ought to know better. You walk with Jesus. But that's not what Paul does. He goes after his brother's heart. Paul says that Peter, quote, stood condemned Not because Paul was standing and condemning him. We don't do that to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul did this because Peter had turned to the wrong order again. Peter was operating according to an order that said, Obey the law and you're made right with God. But you know what the law does when you try to be right with God by keeping it? It condemns you because you can't keep it. Paul writes this in verse 16. By works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. Paul doesn't say to Peter, man, you're probably not even a Christian anymore. That would be making Christianity a matter of keeping the law. Instead, he says... Your conduct is not in keeping with the gospel. In other words, you are anxious and acting like you're enslaved to a law, Peter, and therefore inferior or superior based on how well you're keeping it. Brother, this is not the gospel. You not only don't have the right to feel superior, you don't have the need to feel superior anymore. You're already clean by the word that's been spoken to you. Peter, you're already forgiven by the sacrifice that's been made for you. My brother, wake up! That's what Paul is saying. Dear friends, and especially singles, I know that Louisville, Kentucky can be a place of debauchery. I know the temptations toward a pagan lifestyle are real. And in light of last week's sermon, I know that there is even pressure in the midst of unsatisfied longings to pursue things like same-sex attraction and exploration. I've watched it happen over and over. But for you who are in the church and who are seeking to live godly lives, here's the greater temptation that I see for you in particular. Louisville, Kentucky can be like a big old circumcision party. It can It is a tremendously religious town. In terms of language, the content of the gospel is everywhere. We know the right order, and we can articulate it straight from our Greek New Testaments. But in terms of culture, the outworking of the gospel can get all kinds of disordered. Paul refers to this later when he says, After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort. See, the Galatian Christians, in Paul's writing of this letter, had fallen asleep on the gospel. They had forgotten that it not only applies to salvation, but to sanctification. As Tim Keller puts it, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. It's how you start. It's also how you finish. And Louisville Christians we can often do the same thing, getting this backwards. Let me give you the most basic example that I can think of. When I ask someone, and I've stopped asking people this question because the same thing always happens. When I ask people, someone, how are you doing spiritually? Or like, how's your soul right now? They almost always answer the same way. Can you guess how? By telling me something that they are doing or not doing. And it is their devotional life. They'll say, well, you know, I've been reading my Bible and praying consistently. Which means I'm good right now. Or they'll say, I haven't really been reading my Bible and praying consistently. Which means what? I'm, I'm not real good right now. Now, I'm not saying that your devotional life is not important nor a reflection of your relating to God. It is, right? It's important. It's a part of, of what it means to abide in Christ. What I am saying is that it can be used to measure your spiritual state based on human effort. You can replace it with anything else. You know, instead of talking about devotional life, you know, put some other things there. You can say, I'm actively sharing the gospel or I'm not. I'm avoiding pornography or I'm not. I'm serving the church or I'm not. I'm doing my best at work or school or not. And in all of those cases, it's all measures based on human effort. And the scandal of the gospel is that it removes all measures of human effort once and for all. Absolutely nothing is required of you anymore. Not a devotional life, not evangelism, not purity, not service, not hard work. That's scandalous, y'all. Martin Luther, he sums it up like this. Is there not anything for us to do to get the gospel? No, nothing. It's all done by Jesus. It's all accomplished by just trusting in him rather than your own human effort. Nothing else. You might say, that's too easy. Like you're going to end up with a bunch of transgressors, pastor. But that would be the circumcision party talking. Paul anticipates this and he writes, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What's he saying? Galatians is complicated. Took a lot of work this week to figure out what exactly Paul is saying. Is he saying, if I live as though nothing is required of me, then I'll be a transgressor? Then I'll be getting Jesus all messy with my sin? No, no, no. He is saying the opposite. He's saying, if I live as though something is required of me, like Peter, then I'm a transgressor. Then I'm rebuilding the wall that Jesus tore down on the cross. Then I've changed the order of the gospel again. Believe in Jesus and obey the law, and then I'll be right with God. Then I'll be good to go. Then I'll be justified. And, y'all, that is not the gospel. How is all this possible? And what does it mean, especially for singles? Well, that brings us to our first point. You no longer live. Young disciples, you need that word, live. Here we arrive at verse 20, one of the most paradoxical verses in the Bible. It begins like this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. One of my favorite ways to understand the gospel comes from a famous Old Testament story, Noah's Ark. Young disciples, you want to write that down for your guide. You know it. You can probably help me tell it. Young disciples, when God was so upset with the sins of humanity that he decided to wipe everyone out, how did he do it? Do you remember what the story tells us? A flood, that's right, a great flood. There was only one way to be rescued from that flood. What was it? Anybody remember? Noah's ark, that's right, to go into the ark, to put all your trust in the ark instead of building your own boat or trying to outswim the flood. Noah and his family, they still passed through God's judgment, but they were safe inside the ark. And so they made it those 40 days and those 40 nights. In the same way, God's wrath against the sins of humanity is coming again, but this time in the form of a great fire. What is the one way to be rescued from it? To enter into, not an ark, but into a person, Jesus Christ. To pass through God's judgment, safe inside Jesus. And so that means putting all your trust in his effort on the cross instead of building your own fireproof bunker. I'm good enough, or I've been baptized, or I'm active at church, or I do all this or that. And if you will put all your trust in what Jesus did on the cross and you'll repent, turn away from your own effort, then Paul says that you died with Jesus on the cross. Remember, you've entered into Christ, so whatever goes on with him goes on with you. In another place, Paul writes, "...we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." The old you stood condemned because you could not keep the law. You were fit for nothing but the fire of God's judgment. But this is the paradox of God's grace. When you stopped trying and did nothing at all but trust, instantly you were united to Jesus in such a way that when God sees you, he sees Jesus. Remember, you're inside him. It's as if you died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. You were more than enough pleasing to God. Tim Keller puts it this way, God pinned Jesus' medals to your chest. He took your sins, gave you his righteousness. That's the gospel. And in a sense... You have disappeared into the ark, into Christ forever. It's like the great church father, Augustine. Early in his life, he was essentially a sex addict. And the story goes that after believing the gospel, one day he saw an old lover in the street, but didn't come on to her like he would have in the past. And so she said, thinking that he maybe didn't recognize her, Augustine, it is I. To which Augustine replied, I know, it is no longer I. The old Augustine was gone. Friend, if you have died with Christ, then what else could be required of you? What else is God going to say? You know, not enough. I need a little bit something more. Single Christians, let me speak to you for just a moment. I know some of the pressures that you live under. To have perfect control over your unfulfilled sexual desire. To find an ideal Christian spouse like tomorrow. To have all God's plans for your life figured out already. To be so satisfied in Jesus that you're never lonely. To walk with such confidence that you never lack self worth. To be married to Jesus in this saintly devotional life that never ebbs and flows. To serve like crazy in the local church. We all know you got time. To be super missional because you've got nothing better to do. To be a super parent. To hurry up and get over the pain of divorce. To be financially independent and not needy. But can I just say, on behalf of the gospel, like you don't owe God or anyone else a thing. And anyone or anything that says you do is the circumcision party talking. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. It's the gospel. Which, confusingly, brings us to the second Point of the paradox you now do live young disciples you need that word live the second half of paul's words in verse 20 go like this in the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me now sometimes I think that you can trust a Christian teacher by how much they speak out of both sides of their mouth, okay? Because the Bible will do this. It will say this truth and this truth that are somehow true at the same time, even though they seem the opposite. Which one is it, Paul? Do you live or not live? You're saying two different things here, except that it's both. At the same moment that the gospel put the old Paul to death, it also raised The new Paul to life. Paul could write in Ephesians that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gospel believer is hidden in the ark of Christ. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to me. If he's on the throne in heaven, so am I. That's the language of the Bible, as crazy as it sounds. And yet at the same time, and I think this is the hardest part of the Christian life, I am living a normal everyday life in the flesh here in Louisville, Kentucky. I am sharing the immortal throne of heaven right now. Meanwhile, sometime later today, I will be sitting on the porcelain throne of heaven, of earth, okay? Same time. How is that possible? One of the most one of the most humble, everyday things that you do here. And one of the most cosmic, glorious things doing here. True at the same time. How can my brain comprehend this reality? And yet, it is reality. Therefore, Paul says, our life in the flesh is not lived by sight of the Son of God, but by faith in the Son of God. Faith in what exactly about Him? That He exists? No. Faith that he loved me and gave himself for me. There is reality. What is that? That's the gospel. The circumcision party says, yes, Jesus died for you, but in order to get something out of you, so you need to get to work paying him back. But the gospel says he died for you because he loved you, liked you, wanted you, full stop. So what does that mean for your life? It means that you now live according to the proper order, that you're made right with God, justified, full stop, and now you can obey. You go seeking to fulfill God's law, not because you have to, but because you want to. Listen, there are people sitting beside each other in Louisville churches right now, and they are doing many of the same things, and their lives look very similar, but there could be an eternity of difference between why they're doing those things. One person because she has to, and the other because she wants to. One dead trying to make herself alive, the other alive knowing that she has died in Christ and been raised anew. It's a mystery, paradox. You see, the obedience of the circumcision party is always anxious, always saying, am I doing enough? Am I loved? It's it's selfish, and it's burdened, and it's joyless, and it's proud. But the gospel believer is waking up It's not perfect, but they're waking up to obey from the freedom of confidence. I am enough. I am loved. Along with it, selflessness and joy and humility. For the single Christian, that means this. That you don't have to be in perfect control over your unfulfilled sexual desire, but you're fighting for it that you don't have to find an ideal Christian spouse, but you're asking God for one and his timing or for his help to be satisfied in your singleness. It means that you don't have to have all God's plans for your life figured out, but you're trusting him one step at a time. It means you don't have to be so satisfied in Jesus that you're never lonely, but you're bringing it to him and into community. It means that you don't have to walk with such confidence that you never lack self-worth, but you are letting other believers wake you back up to your worth when you forget it. It means that you don't have to be married to Jesus in a saintly devotional life, but you keep coming back to it when the rhythms fall out again. It means that you don't have to serve like crazy in the local church. You don't have to, but you do want to leverage your season of life well. It means that you don't have to be a super missional Christian because you've got nothing better to do, but that you are open to how God might use you and send you locally and globally. It means that you don't have to be a super parent, but You're showing up even when it's hard. It means that you don't have to hurry up and get over the pain of divorce, but you're laboring in such a way that you're asking God to not let it define you. It means that you don't have to be financially independent and not needy, but you're working in order to be able to have something to share with others. This is an entirely different way to live. This is saying, I am not my own. Thankfully, when I passed out at that basketball game, I didn't suffocate and lose my life there in a stadium seat. Wouldn't that have been awkward? Somebody pulled the mask up and dude is a goner. No, by God's grace, I woke up. Perhaps today, some of you need to wake up. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you've been in the church and living a Christian kind of life, but the gospel has never clicked for you until today. Maybe like Paul and Augustine and Martin Luther, like this could be where you finally get the order of the gospel right where you experience the freedom of the old you dying and the new you coming to life. Maybe for others, you just need to wake up again. Like Peter, you've allowed yourself to stand condemned by living as though the law is required of you. You're tangled up in anxiety and joylessness, and you have forgotten that you are, Are nothing but loved. Don't try to finish your race by your own human effort. Come back to doing nothing. (laughs) And that's why that this table that sits before us doesn't look like the Ark of the Covenant, where the Old Testament law was kept to remind you of what's required of you. But instead, this table is spread with the body and blood of Christ to remind you that nothing is required of you anymore. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples, breaking it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do you hear the love in that statement? Not guilt, not shame, not fear. Broken, because I love you, my friends. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, we are announcing this, and I invite you to say it with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our tradition here at Antioch Church, if you're a baptized believer, is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice and take it remembering how much Christ loved you when he died on the cross for you and also in so doing, proclaiming that he is coming again. If you're here today and you're a believer, but you've not yet been baptized, our invitation to you is to follow in obedience to Jesus by being baptized. And on that very same Sunday, you can take communion with the body of Christ for the first time. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, rather than coming and acting like a Christian, we would invite you to actually become a Christian, which means you turn away from trying to be good enough in your own human effort. And you instead put your trust in his effort on your behalf on the cross and an empty tomb. And that today would be your day to know Christ and be saved. And be set free from all requirements for all of eternity. There will be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. In this moment. And we thank you for the good news of the gospel that can be preached to us. What if we were a people who had never heard this good news? What if we were in a place where this good news was not yet accessible? And so what gratitude we have. That we get to hear it either for the first time or the hundredth time or the thousandth time. And Lord, may this gospel be what compels our hearts and moves our hearts and changes our hearts, even in this moment, as we all respond to you. Lord, I know your gospel has the power to harden a heart or to soften it. I pray that no heart would be hardened to the good news of the gospel this morning, but instead would be softened such that they are drawn to you and they come in obedience to you, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, or the thousandth time. I pray especially for those in our midst who are singles and who face the pressures of debauchery and yet also the pressures of a circumcision party in a place like Louisville, Kentucky. And I ask, Lord, that the gospel would win today, that it would wake them up once again today to how much they are loved and how you require nothing of them but that they would be moved in such a way to give you everything in response freely and joyfully. Lord, have your way in this moment. Be glorified. May your spirit move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.